you know, and a lot of institutions funding research on, the, on social justice, social indicators of health and things like that, you know, it, it's become such a hot topic and it should be. But again, you know, what took us so long? What took us so long to think about the racism in nursing, really? Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing Podcast, we talk with Dr. Julie Fairman, Professor of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Dr. Fairman is a renowned nurse historian who's made significant contributions in studying how 20th century healthcare issues have influenced current nursing and healthcare trends. Her remarkable career has sparked a new paradigm for studying the history of healthcare and health policy, and her current research focuses on the civil rights movement. Dr. Fairman talks with us about the nuances involved with studying the history of healthcare, the role of nurses in addressing structural racism, and how historical perspectives shape the landscape of healthcare practice and policy today. So, Julie, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Angela, for um, having me here. It's really always great to talk about something you really care about. Yeah. <laughs> So why don't we start by talking just about what brought you into nursing? So I went to college thinking I was going to be a forest ranger. And my father wanted me to be a secretary. It was good occupation for a girl. And my mother really is the one who encouraged me to go to college. So I went to college and, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe the Vietnam War was really sort of winding down then and you were seeing all those young men in body bags and things like that. And I thought, hmm, maybe here's somewhere, someplace I can make a difference. I think that was always something I really wanted to do. I grew up in the woods, I grew up in the forest and you know, that was just like a really happy place. But being able to care for injured soldiers or care for really sick people, you know, after my grandmother got sick was really some of the things that drove me there, I think. So after the first year, I really switched into nursing and never looked back. That's great. So how did you end up doing what you do now? (laughs) So I, when I finished my baccalaureate program, I went to Penn to work as a nurse. My first time I'd ever, well, maybe the second time I've ever been in a city. I grew up in a very small rural farm town. So I went to work in the ICU and I loved it, but I felt like I really needed some additional skills to, to really work as well as I wanted to. And at that time, the idea of a clinical nurse specialist and a nurse practitioner was really beginning to gain ground. And I thought, "Hmm, I would really like to do that. I always like to work as independently as possible, which is probably why I like history. So I went back to Penn. And and also they were paying full tuition at that point. (laughs) Wow! And so I went back for my master's degree. It also was the time of nurse traineeships and master's programs. So my whole education plus the stipend was paid. And then I happened to be 
sitting next to Joan Lineau at a luncheon and said, I really would like to get into teaching and I like research. You know, I was working then as a clinical specialist in a kidney transplant clinic, and it was a great job. I was following about 500 transplant patients and, you know, physicians aren't also always so happy to work in clinics and to work in the outpatient realm, especially surgeons. Mm -hmm. And so I was pretty independent. So I thought I would do my dissertation on adolescents who stopped their transplant immunosuppressant drugs because we had a whole handful of them who were doing it at about the same age and what was going on there. I mean, we knew what was going on, but how can you prevent that? And I was sitting next to Joan Lineau and she, I said, I'd like to do that. She's, and I said, but what I really love is history. You know, my dad and I would talk about history books. We'd watch history things on TV. And uh, I said, but I know you can't do that in a PhD program in nursing. And she said, looked at me and she said, well, why not? Because I, I didn't think you could do it. And who I was talking to was somebody who, herself had gotten her PhD in history at the University of Kansas and had been brought in to start not only a nurse practitioner program, because she's one of the foremost and earliest adapters of the nurse practitioner model in nursing education, but also she started at the Barbara Bates Center, which wasn't called the Barbara Bates Center. And she created a relationship with Charles Rosenberg and Rosemary Stevens. It was very collaborative across disciplines. And so that's how I really came to where I was. And she happened to have gotten a query from the American Association of Critical Care Nurses who were interested in having their history written. And so as a doctoral student, she brought me along because I had been a critical care nurse, right? That, that was my dissertation, a history of critical care. Now, the association wanted an association history, but what Joan was really astute at doing was to, to make sure that this was not just a history, a celebratory history of the organization, but also a history of how we came to have the most expensive care in the United States through critical care units. And that, that was my dissertation in my first book. That's, that's it. That's <laughs> so I got my PhD. And then I was lucky enough to get a, fac a postdoc with the History Center. And then I went into an assistant professor role at the school. And I've been here for a very long time. I think it's so interesting to me how many people have these serendipitous things that happen that bring them to where they are. And so many people say it's like, the best thing that ever happened to them were, were these chance conversations and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I've had that all throughout my career. For example, I happened, I was, you know, an assistant professor. I just got promoted to associate professor and I was thinking, you know, what's, what's next for me. I did the critical care book. I was writing about nurse practitioners, you know, what I, I really like this policy angle because it's all historically grounded, right? depending on what lens you use. And so I had a conversation with Mary Naylor and I said, well, how can I get more into the policy arena? And she said, you know, right now, the what was then the Institute of Medicine is convening a committee on the future of nursing. And the American Association of, American Academy of Nursing, American Nurses Association and the American Nursing Foundation was sponsoring a scholar in residence at the IOM. And so she suggested I apply for that. And I did. And I was given that 
particular fellowship. I mean, that to me, that was serendipitous. And I, I do remember I was interviewed by Sue Hassmiller, though I don't think she admits to this. And she said to me, why do I need a historian for this committee? This was, you know, was headed by Donna Shalala and Linda Burns Bolton. She says, I don't, what do I need a historian for? You know, we're looking to the future. We're not looking to the past. And so we had a long conversation where it's not that I convinced her, but I think I probably put forward a pretty good justification for why the committee needed a historical perspective. Now, I wasn't a committee member. I served as staff to the committee, which actually is a pretty important position because that's where a lot of the work happens. That was one. The other one was I was giving a talk. What the heck was this? In Washington, D.C. Mary, Mary again, couldn't go. It was on, I'm trying to think of Christensen's name, uh, in, uh, Disruptive Innovations in Healthcare. And I talked about nurse practitioners and you know gave my little spiel. I was the only woman on the panel. It was all these people who were doing apps and devices and tech and all that kind of stuff. And I'm the only woman, the only nurse. And you know, I talk about uh, I talked about competition and how you know the Federal Trade Commission. You know, that was one of the first recommendations coming out of the Institute of Medicine report was that the Federal Trade Commission should look at anti-competitive practices. And so after I gave my talk, uh, a gentleman walked up to me and he said, you know, I'm Dan Gilman and I'm the one who writes the advocacy letters to states when they're opening up their nurse practice acts. And I totally agree with you. So he and I went on to this really nice writing partnership. We published one article. Um, He was on Ashley Ritter's dissertation, which was great on collaborative agreement, legally required collaborative agreements. So those are two really interesting ways that, you know, serendipity, I didn't go looking for that, you know, <laughs> I didn't go looking for these things, but they were there and I took advantage of them. And I think, you know, you can do all the planning you want, to, you know, in, in terms of your career, you can build up your publications, you can build up your funding portfolio, but sometimes it's just, you know, you have to be able to grab what comes down the road to do what, what you like doing. So what were some of the things that you enjoyed doing the most? In terms of history or in terms of career in general? or In terms of history. Mm-hmm. I love the research. I do. I love the, it's, it's funny. I call it the hunt. I love the hunt for resources and for data. You know, looking at trying to find, you know, that little piece of data that really just ties everything together. To me, that's, that's the most fun about it, in a sense. It's the hardest thing, too, because, you know, many times, for example, archives, you know, archives are very uh, political, for example. They will only, they, they keep what they think is important and what is, and they prioritize what they think it is important. That's structured on race, class, gender. And so when you go looking for things, you know, nurses were not always considered the highest priority for many of these archives. And you really, really have to dive deep. So I just found my current work is looking at women as, as civil rights activists, as and women as activists generally, using the 60s, 70s, and 80s as a really sort of time period. And you know, I found some nurses in the civil rights movement. And I also found nurses in uh, the West. Nobody has written about really nurses working in the West as rights advocates. And 
um, in the Midwest and in the Southwest. And I have found a nurse that worked with Cesar Chavez. I found um, oral histories of two nurses who worked in California with, I believe it's Henry Reibel, who started the Hispanic Congressional Caucus. They're, they're out there, but they don't have their own repositories. They either didn't think about saving their own records, perhaps didn't want to save their own records, and other places didn't see it as important to save their records. So it's really hard. So you don't, you know, there's, it's not just there where you just walk in and say, oh, look at this is great. I have all these records. It's, it's like being an investigative reporter, trying to figure out, you know, where your sources are, what they mean, and, and setting them in the context of the time period. That's yeah. what I like. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of hard work. It sounds, I mean, honestly, it sounds, it's probably very tedious at times because I'm sure it's like finding a needle in a haystack when you're looking for information that isn't, you know, for example, like you said, you're looking for nurses and they're, it's not a repository of information on nurses. You're looking in other places, mm-hmm. trying to find them. I mean, if you do history, well, it looks easy. Mm-hmm but it isn't easy. It's, you know, you're, you're creating a story out of wisps of information sometimes, and you have to speculate and you make the best, you try to make the best storyline, the best narrative, the clearest narrative you can, with sometimes very little, little data to go on. You have to be able to piece it together. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's also kind of, kind of fun doing that. So how, can you give me an example of that, of how you would, like, how, how do you come up with that? I'm trying to think of an example for you. For example, I'm, I'm now working with the Dean on a project of a nurse who everyone should know about, but nobody really knows about. Her name's Henrietta Biascusa. And she worked for Henry Bible and the community service organization. She was appointed to Mar- by Margaret Heckler to many posts in the government and was responsible for many instrumental reports on minority health. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody knows about her, um, except those who, who actually were mentored by her and especially, you know, in the Mexican American nurse community, for example, she's, she's known, but outside of that community, very few people, know about her. So we're trying to find, I mean, there's, you can, you can establish a timeline, you can establish a descriptive thing of what she did when and where, but you don't have that deep dive. It's almost been impossible to get that deep dive in terms of, you know, what, what drove her? Why'd she go to nursing? What were the barriers she faced? You know, how did she take advantage of opportunities? What did she do with with Henry Reibel, I mean, even in his records in California archives, you know, you search for her, she's not there. Mm-hmm. So, so what we're trying to do is piece together a little bit more of a story than she did this when and what, because that's, that's typically, that's technically not history. It's setting her accomplishments and her work within the context of the time period. So a better sense of what it really was like for her to, to be there. Now we do have some oral history informants who we're going to start talking to in March, but you know, she's not alive anymore. So we can't talk to her, but we can compare her then to some of the other 
if we find any other oral histories of Mexican-American nurses, I mean, she was incredibly important for starting the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. So, you know, we're going to have to take pieces and put them together to make a narrative that actually tells us a little bit about her. What got you interested in looking into the civil rights era? So my second book was on the nurse practitioner movement, and that was, you know, more than, it's been more than 10 years now that that's been published. And, you know, I started thinking about, you know, all the material I had that I didn't put in that book. And I came upon a, a photograph that actually Joan Lyon had sent me, Lino had sent me afterwards. And in this photograph was the, was a, a young woman, a young black woman with other white women who were part of the Rochester program. It's nothing in my book really about race. <laughs> you know, and if we think about all the institutional racism that we talk, we're talking about today and, and looking at the proportions of nurses of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, we should have been talking about, I should have been talking about them. So, so that was part of it was, was then searching for where were these other voices in the nurse practitioner movement? For example, I talk about Harriet Kitzman and uh, Joan Lionel and Barbara Bates, you know, who started some of the early programs in Rochester. Of course, we all know about Loretta Ford, but at the same time, there's a lot of activity at Rochester. There was Evelyn Tomes in Tennessee who was opening programs at Mahari and her her students couldn't actually get placements in Tennessee or in any surrounding state. So they would come north to do their placements. Um, she had one of the first mental health nurse practitioner programs. And there are a lot of things like that out there that I did not include in this book and which I really am going to do in the next revision of it. But so that made me think about what is it that, you know, what is it about this? this institutional racism that we've had in nursing. And I've thought about this for a while. And so the civil rights movement was sort of a, again, I fell into this serendipitously because I learned about a nurse who went South during the summer of 64. Now, we don't usually think about nurses working in the civil rights movement because, you know, John Dittmer wrote about quote, the good doctors and there are nurses in there, but, if you look at his table of contents, there's not even the word nurses in terms of the book. Uh, he wrote about the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which hired nurses to go south to work in communities. Now, a lot of the nurses went, so, so, so that's sort of how I got into this because I thought here is an, you know, I am just, I would backpedal just a bit and say, it was about the time when we were hearing a lot of re uh, rhetoric about how nurses are such patient advocates. And, you know, we were always there for the patient. Well, not always. And I had read about nurses in the segregated South who kept patients out of waiting rooms, who, you know, refused to treat either the activists or people in the Black community, depending on where they were. And so, that made me think about, well, what were nurses doing this? I knew about the freedom schools. I knew there were nurses teaching in the freedom schools and I knew there were nurses who went South. Why is it we haven't heard more about this? And then to begin with, you know, 
civil rights wasn't only happening in the South. So that's why I became interested in the West, the Midwest, and the Southwest, where there's a lot of activity going on. So that's, in a sense, it's not a direct route, but again, a little bit serendipitous when you learn about interesting people, which make you ask interesting questions. Yeah. And I think that if we're going to overcome any of the challenges that we have today in nursing in regards to racism, then we need to understand the truth of what was happening then. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe White now always used to say, you, you need to know the past to understand the present and think about the future. We don't predict the future, but in order to think about how we can make a better future, we have to understand our history and we have to understand how it has influenced the, the present, I think. You know, history informs everything we do. I mean, even quantitative researchers, you know, if you look at anything over time, which is what history does, they're doing, <laughs> in a sense, this is heretical. They're mm-hmm. doing historical research. They're looking mm-hmm. at change over time. You know, how they develop their questions comes from somewhere. And as Joe Lionel said before, everything has a past. So why is it we're interested in these questions? You know, maybe there's money there. Maybe there's a way to you know, increase our prominence, whatever. But I would, I would argue that just about every question we raise in any kind of research we do has a, hist- has a historical foundation. And if you don't understand the context of what you're asking, you perhaps might not be able to ask the right questions. I never considered it that way. That's a really great way to think about it. Well, and if you think about it, historians look at context and context is not just a single singular factor. It's everything. I always put it, uh, you know, give it like, it, it's a nest, this context. It's the race, the class, the gender, the economics, the religion that sort of shapes whatever we do. Mm-hmm. And if you can't think about how that's influencing the way you think, again, you may not be asking the right questions. So everything, Everything has a context, everything has a past. And if you don't acknowledge it, again, you won't be asking the right questions. What's next? I probably have so many projects, which is a problem. (laughs) (laughs) It is a problem, but so I'm on my, in May, I'm on my way to Bellagio, Italy at the Rockefeller Foundation center there to do an academic writing fellowship with a colleague of mine, Mm -hmm. uh, Karen Flynn from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champlain. She's not a nurse. She's a historian. She's one of my interdisciplinary colleagues. And Mm -hmm. we have proposed to write a book proposal on women as activists. Her Mm -hmm. area of research is on Caribbean Caribbean nurse migration. Um, So she's a, a Black studies scholar, women's scholar, historian. And so we will work together and write together on that. I'm going to try to revise the nurse practitioner book, bring it up to the future, and also think about how to better address some of the issues, some of the social issues we're looking at. And there's an interesting project, not really quite off the ground yet, but I'm working on with two doctoral students, Raven Ponte and Andre Rosario, on a 
woman photographer from New York City, white woman, who went south, left her family for a couple of months, and actually produced some of the most iconic photographs of the civil rights area era. Her photographs of Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker are really quite famous, but she also took lots of photographs of nurses. And we like my current idea is to create some sort of digital digital site for putting these sort of highlighting these photographs, you know, the activists behind the lens and then situating those photographs, looking at who is in them, who are the nurses, who are the women who are actors. I mean, most nurses didn't go south to be nurses. They went south to register people to vote. And they believe very strongly, both, you know, across the race, across ethnicity and social justice. And, but once it was found out that they actually were nurses. They were enlisted into the healthcare um, arena. They built health centers. They treated the activists. There was an incredible amount of uh, stress and violence in the South and a lot of GI bleeds, a lot of PT, we wouldn't call it this then, but PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the nurses down there do describe having flashbacks even today. Uh, but they became they became the go-to people for healthcare for many of the people who they worked with in the community and also because they had no resources either and also the activists. Um, they, bore, they bore witness to women, to people in prison. They visited after Medicare and Medicaid were passed in 65. They visited hospitals to see if they were still, if they were desegregating. I mean, these nurses did a, a lot a lot of things to move forward the civil rights agenda. So that's that's where we are. That sounds like such an interesting project. It is. And, and as I said, I keep finding these nurses where we haven't seen them before. And it's been a really interesting, really interesting journey. I, I was just out in Wyoming and I visited the Heart Mountain settlement center, you know, during World War II, they moved a lot of the Japanese from Mm -hmm. the West Coast into the interior of the country because they thought they were a threat. I mean, there's a lot of racism in terms of this, how they treated the Japanese Americans then. Yeah. And um, at Heart Mountain, there was a nurse. There was a nurse who was providing most of the most, what little health care they actually had in these um, internment camps. But I have a little bit of a beat on her now. So really interesting way of thinking about, you know, our history as a very complex and not always a very progressive one. Yeah, it is extremely complex and incredibly fascinating. And I think that it really lends to, like you said, where we're heading, what kind of policy we're going to make and decisions as a profession moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this idea that I would love to write this blog post called What Took Us So Long? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you read every single journal we have that comes out, right, there's a study on social indicators of health, on uh, institutional racism, on social justice. Well, you know what, we've been talking about this for over a century. And all of a sudden, it's become, I think, because of social media really. Um, And also, I I think Robert Wood Johnson has probably some credit because of their culture of health movement. But, you know, if you think about 
you know, Henry Street settlement house where they had lawyers who helped immigrants with their landlords. They had childcare, they had healthcare, they had all kinds of things. I mean, in terms of things that look like what we talk about the social indicators, addressing the social indicators of health. Mm -hmm. In 1970, I can't remember the exact date, Nursing Outlook has an entire issue on poverty, entire issue wow. with, with lots and lots of, of really good articles on how nurses could be addressing health when they, with a found, from a foundation of poverty in trying to alleviate poverty and how poverty influences health. Mm -hmm. You know, I looked into the next couple issues, no letters to the editor. I don't even know if anybody responded to it, but there's, it's, we've, we have been, there's, there's been a group that's been talking about this for a long time, but it's been more individual approaches rather than institutional approaches, I think, you know, and a lot of institutions funding research on the, on social justice, social indicators of health and things like that, you know, it, it's become such a hot topic and it should be, but again, you know, what took us so long, what took us so long to think about the racism in nursing really. I, do you think it's just because we're, we're conservative as a profession by nature or just the pretty homogenous makeup of the group or there's, I mean, there's so many different things, the working class roots, you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That usually go along with nursing, that very conservative working class line that we tend to see, mm -hmm. I guess, a confluence of all those things. I think you're right. I think it is a confluence of all those things. I mean, if you think about our major organization, the American Nurses Association. I mean, they failed to support a presidential candidate in this last in this last election, even with the incredible moral and moral overtones that could have put them in a different direction. And they're, one of the things is that nurses are really conservative. So if they support one particular candidate, you know, they're fearful of losing that particular constituency, constituency, when in fact they should be leaders rather than worrying about who's going to pay their dues next year. But again, I think when, I believe it was the, I have to, I have to think about this, but one, there was another presidential election where they again refused to um, support a particular candidacy. When in fact, you know, the, from what I heard, the main reason they didn't do that was because they were worried about their, their conservative traditional members. I mean, that's really not the reason to do something. I mean, take a stand, take a moral and value laden stand on something because it has implications for all of us. It does. Uh, and I see, I see that a lot in policy work that it's, very easy for people outside of nursing to make policy decisions for us because we don't stand together as a group. What's interesting is lately, in the last couple of weeks, I've been seeing a lot about this initiative in Congress about capping nurses' salaries in travel agencies. I mean, really, what is that about? Hospitals are, to tell you the truth, institutions are not used to paying for the value the nursing care value. They're just not, I mean, that's a historical contingency. And so 
okay, if you're not going to give your staff the resources they need to care for patients in a way that is not stressful and not consuming, then in a sense, you should learn from that, (laughs) frankly. You know, why should Congress cap nurses' salaries? Give me a break. You know, I think it, I think there's a lot of historical, like I said, contingency in terms of it being a primarily gender-based occupation, in terms of being at a middle-class occupation, and in terms of not really having a large voice. Um, although I, you know, the American Academy of Nursing tries very hard to be there for policy discussions and to advocate for policy change. But still, really. <laughs> That's that to me, that was incredible. And I'm seeing it on Twitter, but I'm not seeing a lot of discussion anyplace else. Yeah, that's incredible because you'd never have that discussion regarding physicians. You'd never have that discussion regarding administrators. No, I mean, really local tenants, you see any, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't Mm -hmm. tell me that's not happening in that arena. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no discussion about that. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, my own personal perspective is that it's very gender-based and very gender-biased. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. But I mean, at the same time, I don't understand how you can cap anybody's salary in a market-driven for-profit industry like healthcare is in our country. It, I mean, if you, it would be a whole different story if it wasn't a for-profit industry. Right. Because they're really worried about the recruitment agencies, the temp agencies, you know, reaping a profit from this. Well, you know, hospitals are reaping a profit. <laughs> so why are we worried about temp agencies reaping a profit? Right. Uh, it, it's, it is so interesting because again, it has historical roots in, you know, the fifties and sixties when uh, diploma programs were being phased out, hospitals were saying, well, well, why are, where are we going to get the nurses? Where, um, why are you, we're going to have to pay nurses a lot now? And it's like, yeah, you might have to. And, and even intensive care units were established to keep down costs, to keep down nursing costs. And in fact, it's become the most expensive type of care we have in this country today. So, you know, it, again, you're going to see historical threads throughout all of this. So I want to be cognizant of your time. Is there anything else that you would like to touch base on before we go? <laughs> you know, we've been talking a lot pretty generally about the value of history and, you know, historical perspectives, again, inform everything we do. I, I just want to give a shout out to my colleagues, Cindy Connolly, who has written about pediatric pharmaceuticals, you know, showing why it is we really don't know what we're giving kids when we dose them. And, you know, Pat, Pat D'Antonio, I think you've had on a previous podcast, has looked at different ways that nurses, especially around the turn of the century, have created really interesting models of health, health maintenance, which for reasons that, you know, we know are not sustainable. You know, we really have quite a bit to offer in terms of uh, current policy strategies and also in terms of, I think, current research endeavors. And again, as I said, Joan always said, everything has a history. No matter what you think you're going to ask as your research question or what you think you're going to do 
in terms of your scholarship, everything has a context. And if you don't understand it, you may not be asking the right questions. Hello, Angela. Hello, Marion. How's it going? Uh, it's amazing. I so very much enjoyed your interview with Dr. Julie Fairman. I loved hearing where she came from, what she's doing now, the fact that she wanted to originally go into forestry service, which I thought was fascinating. The whole interview was just great. Yeah, she really is a fascinating person and incredibly inspiring. I really enjoyed talking to her about about all the things really, but specifically about how how history really informs what's happening now and the importance of really understanding the history of nursing if we want to grow as a profession in a in a really great way. And we have the potential to do that. But unfortunately, I feel like we really don't, as a profession, understand where we came from and, and what we do. And I think that the work that she's doing, especially learning now, like researching activists and, and things like that, that she's really bringing forth the true history of nursing. And, and I hope that everybody pays attention to it because it's so incredibly important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, she talks a lot about the book that she wrote that was 10 years ago now and, and, you know, sort of revisited it and thought, you know, why didn't she talk more about the black experience in her, in her research of nurse practitioners? And, you know, she's working to remedy that. And, you know, I think that's incredible. Yeah, I really enjoyed the part where she was talking about context and how context plays a big part in how you view history. Right, exactly. And if you, she, she makes this excellent point, which again, it's like, it's so simple yet something that I'd never considered before. If you, if you really don't understand the context, if you really don't know the angle that somebody's taking, you don't really understand all the things that are happening. So it's, it's incredible to think about it from that perspective. And it's something that since that interview with her, I've been thinking a lot about and, you know, with all the things that are going on in the world now, sort of trying to figure out the context and the perspective that, that people are coming from. And it's, it's really an interesting way to view the world. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. With special thanks to Jonathan Zhu for his assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.